thank you for this day. We thank you for the wonderful day that we've had and the memorial for the homegoing for Vicki and the fact that the gospel was preached, Lord. We ask that you put conv conviction on people's hearts who heard the message who don't know you, that they will come to you if some need to be right with you, that you'll make the, that they'll make those decisions as well. We ask you to bless and lead, guide this study as we look at your word, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Psalm 104. We're going to read the whole psalm as usual, and then we'll take over where we left off. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who covers yourself with light as with a garment? Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? Who lays the beams of the chambers of the water? Who makes the clouds his chariot? Who walks upon the wings of the, of the wind? Who makes his angel spirits, his ministers of flaming fire? Who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be removed forever? You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, and at the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They, did, they go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys, unto the place which you have founded for them. You have set a bound for them that they may not pass over, that they may turn, not turn again to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses drink their, their, quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation which sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle, the herb for the service of men, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. The wine that makes glad the heart of man, the oil that makes his face to shine, and the bread which strengthens man's hearts. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he has planted. Where the birds make their nests as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for its seasons, the sun knows his going down. You make darkness and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prayer and they seek their meat from God. The sun arises and they gather themselves together and lay down amongst in, in their dens. Man goes forth among the, unto his work and into his labors until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you laid, made them all. The earth is full of your riches. So is the great and wide sea wherein the things creep innumerable, both small and great beast. There go the ships. There, there is the Leviathan whom you have made to play therein. These wait all upon you that they may give you their meat in due season, that you may give them your, give them their gather. Thou opens the your hand and they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath and they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his work. He looks upon the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditations of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless you the Lord, O my soul. Bless, uh, praise ye the Lord. Well, we left off on verse uh, 8 last, uh, last week and we were talking about this picture of, in this psalm of the flood where it talks about the mountains being covered and God has sent the water back to its places and he has laid the foundation. So we'll continue from that, that thing because we're still kind of in the flood for these next couple 
uh, next verse or two. You have set a bound, and they may not pass over, and they turn not again to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys, and, and run, which run among the hills. So he says again, you have set, you have ordained, you have appointed the boundaries for the water. And we see that even to this day, water generally has its boundaries. Now it can temporarily overflow its boundaries. If there's a lot of rain, we can see floods. If there's a major storm, the water will be pushed up, but it always returns back to the boundaries God has set. And in the case of rivers, sometimes the river can be reset. The course can be reset if the flood is bad enough and, and everything. But in general, it stays where it flows. Uh, unless man tries to change it, which we've done many times. But he says, God has set the boundary and it can't return. He sets the springs into the valleys. God sets this springs. And in this springs, it's kind of an interesting word because the springs into the valleys that he's talking about are much like the rivers that we have here in the West. They're dry most of the time. And it's what he's talking about, the dry beds that will run the water off when it rains. And God has, and he says, God has established those. And there is a natural flow to the land that God has placed. And every once in a while, you see people who are very foolish. They're going, it hasn't rained in a long time. I'll build next to this dry riverbed because it looks like a great place to, to, to build. And then the rains come and sweep their, <laughs> sweep their building away or flood their building away. Uh, but God has got these plans, and it says it runs among the hills. And it says the reason they do this is to give drink to every beast of the field and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. God takes care of the animals. And this is an amazing thing for us as we think about it. Man is very independent. We worry about things we shouldn't worry about. And, and it's been said that we worry about things we're not supposed to worry about and, and don't worry about the things that we should be worrying about. And that is true. We worry about Where's my next meal coming from? How am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to do this? And God's saying, I want you to pay attention to how are you going to serve me? How are you going to deal with me? And we see this is the case often with, with people. We forget things we shouldn't, should remember and, don't re, and remember things we should be forgetting. When people are, are doing things that we don't like, we want to remember those. And God's saying, this is the stuff we need to forget. We need to forgive them, forget it. And we want to be able to bless and honor people. And it says he gives uh, drink to every beast and, and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their inhabitation, which sing among the branches. Now, isn't this great? God's creation worships him. And he goes over this. David especially goes over this, how the, how the creation worships him. The, he heard... You know, he's very poetic. Most people that are artistic and poetic, they, see the, they hear the songs of praise and the birds and the, and the crickets and everything else. Uh, I, I appreciate them, but I'm not, I, I've told people I'm very concrete. It's, <laughs> this is the way it is, and that's how I see things. Uh, I've loved in movies now that they have DVDs and they get the director's cuts and the directors tell you why they did things. I'm going, oh, okay, that's why they did this at this spot, you know, because... To me, it was just part of the movie, and I never even noticed it. And now I'm starting, because I'm listening to what the directors say, why they put things in there, I'm starting to see those kind of things a little bit now. And it's really true that everything they put in a movie is there for a reason. People like me never notice those reasons until the director pointed out, this is why it's here, this is what it's showing. Uh, there was one movie where he says he's showing his hands clenched and his anger for God, and then it shows him loosening up his grip you know, as he's releasing to God. And, 
I never really noticed that the first time I watched that movie. And then now that he said it, I notice it every time. And I'm starting to pay attention a little more in, in these movies and the foreshadowing. But God has his creation showing his power. And in that part, I really am sensitive is I love science so much that I look and say, there is so much in this world that we cannot explain without God being the designer and the creator. In spite of what all the evolutionary scientists want to tell us and all these other people want to tell us, there is so much in this world that just could not happen by random chance. And those who want to believe in random chance, they want to say that we have faith because we believe in God. Their faith is just astronomical. To, to say that life generated from nothing, when we know that life doesn't generate from nothing, and yet, and they will tell you life doesn't generate from nothing unless you're in evolution and, have, and that law was violated at least once. And life all of a sudden jumped out of nothing. Even though they'll tell you life does not generate from nothing, and they'll admit that life doesn't generate from nothing, but they'll tell you that it did, because it had to. And this is the logic that the world uses to try to justify their positions. And it's so funny. It, you, you talk to people, and you, you, they run around in circles trying to figure out how to justify what they believe sometime when it's just as easy to say, God started it. God did it. <laughs> now you have to listen to. You have to stay. You have to listen online. <laughs> yeah, go back to the beginning. But this is we see God everywhere we look. You know, when we look at the stars, do you realize that the constellations in the stars are the same set of constellation in all the world? They have the same set of 12 major stars and 36 minor star combinations, co constellations. They're the same everywhere. And of course, anybody who knows anything about stars, if you look at the Big Dipper, you obviously say, that's a bear. You know, no, we don't do that. You know, it is, God is the one who named the stars and he named the constellation. And I read a book many years ago that talked about the gospel and the stars, and it shows that the gospel is shown in the stars. And it's a wonderful book. It's out of print. If you can ever get a copy, get a copy. But it starts at Virgo, the Virgin. You said it was the Gospel and the Stars. The Gospel and the Stars. Is the name of the book. Is the name of the book. Uh, maybe. It's been out of print for a long time. But it starts with Virgo, the Virgin, and ends with Leo, the Lion. And Virgo is the Virgin, even when she's holding her child, just as the Gospel is. We see the... Her, the, the mighty hunter with his foot above the serpent's head, with the serpent ready to strike his foot. And he's ready to crush the serpent's head. Yeah. All of these little vignettes in the stars that when people look at it and they know the story, the gospel was presented right from the very beginning of creation. And God said, here's the story. You're going to sin and I'm going to redeem you. And as they sat in the summer in the, in the desert looking at the stars, there's the gospel message playing itself out each night, each, 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 each year. And they could see the beauty of God's message. And you see the message in the stars with their old names. On, this, on the scales, the side that is, is uh, down, is the name of the star is the, the price deficient. Excuse me, the one that up oh, is the price deficient. The one that's down is the price sufficient, where Jesus paid 
for our sins. We see everything in there with the names of the stars that God gave them. And then people want to say, well, there's just nothing there. It's just all random chance up there. We don't know. You know the, every nation just automatically picked up the star constellations just out of, out of random chance. They picked the, the same stars all the way across all the nations. The flood story of Noah is all through every, every nationality, every place has a story of a great flood that wiped out the world where one family was survived. Now, some of the stories get kind of bizarre <laughs> in, their, in the way they're told, but, you know, like in the Polynesians, they have all the animals in one canoe, which kind of, kind of tells you that it's a pretty bizarre story, but that's what they know. A boat for them is a canoe, so they, they use a canoe, and, you know, so, but the, the stories can sometimes be ruined and changed and altered, and we see the same thing even with the gospel story. That God, Satan has altered the story in many places over time and many uh, mythologies bring in elements of the gospel. Why? Not because the gospel copied the mythology, but because the gospel was out there before the mythologies were developed and Satan changed the story so that the gospel, when it came out, would be looked at man and said, see, they're just, Christianity is just a copy. You know, all the things that Hercules did is what Jesus did. Well, I'm great. But what the, Jesus' teaching was out there long before the mysteries of the, of the mythologies came along. God transcends time. He told us what he was going to do. He told us how he was going to do it. He put it all through the Old Testament on what Jesus was going to do. And Satan understands the Bible really well. This is the problem that we have. We've got to understand Satan understands the Bible and, and he is the master and father of lies. And the best lies have just enough element of truth in them to deceive people. And, that's, and you know that if you've dealt with people... The, when they tell enough truth, but there's enough lie to be a lie, it makes it hard to distinguish the two because there's so much truth in there. Satan does a lot of that. When he says that God wants us to be good, and you know, he'll then change it and do more good than evil. God wants us to be good. He doesn't want us to go out there and become Christians and do as much evil as we possibly can. He wants us to do good, but we're not doing good so that we go to heaven or even to please him. It's just the consequences for doing good and righteous things are what he wants us to live by. So doing good is great. The law is good. Paul said that over and over in the, in the New Testament. The law was not bad. It's not to be thrown out. And a lot of Christians throw out the good and the bad. They go, oh, you know, we're not under the law. We're just going to throw all the law out. There was nothing good in it. No, there's lots of things that are good in it. When God says don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't... Don't commit adultery and all these things. Those are good things to live by. Besides the fact that you will go to jail if you break a lot of them still, even to this day. But you will be losing reward by doing them even if there wasn't a worldly reason not to do it. Because God says there's consequence for our actions. We reap and sow. You want to sow bad seed? You will reap the consequences of that bad seed that you've sown. You want to sow good seed? You reap the consequences of good. The, the Middle Eastern religions with their idea of karma are based upon that same thing, sowing and reaping. Now they go way to the extremes. <laughs> Again, they go so far out to say that you deserve whatever you good, get and they will say that bad and good always have to be in balance for every good thing that's done, some bad thing has to happen. And that's not what Bible teaches. God, God says all good can happen. Now because we're sinners it won't. But we see how Satan twists 
all the different things out there that God says. And when we did the Truth Project, Del Tackett said that for every truth that God has, Satan has hundreds of lies. And I quote that a lot because it is very true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And Satan has all these other ways to try to trick people into following and arriving to God. And it's all going to send them to hell and take them away from God. And that's his whole goal. And you know, like I say, they use little bits of truth. You know, karma, sowing and reaping. You know, uh, but now let's take it to an extreme. Do good rather than bad. Take it to an extreme and say, that's how you please God. All these things that he tells us. He'll tell us that you know, God says that it's to be one man, one woman for life, and Satan will give us all kinds of reasons to not do that and, and to not even get married because, you know, it's too many people are getting divorced. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of that anymore, people not wanting to get divorced, married because so many people get divorced. A lot of older people telling us, I'm not going to get married because it'll, it'll hurt my Social Security. Well, where's your, where's your hope? Is your hope in God or is your hope in, in the government paying your Social Security? You know, we've got to look at these things. Are we going to do what God says on things? Or are we going to do what, what man says is good, what Satan is leading us to? Sometimes it's a big decision. Sometimes it's a very big decision that has to be made. And sometimes it makes no sense to make that decision. There are times when making the decision for God makes absolutely no sense. We've talked about this when we talk about tithing. You know, give God your 10%, and God says he's going to bless it. Humanly, that makes no sense. You can't make it on 100%, and all of a sudden you're going to give God 10%, and somehow you're going to live on 90%. But you know what? I have found over the years, you follow that with God, and you give him his money, and he blesses it. When you make a decision to follow, I'm going to stay married no matter how I feel about it, because I chose to be married and, and, and not entertain divorce, eventually you feel back, fall back in love again, you have your feelings back again, and it's just a cycle that's going to come and go for the entire time. When God says come to church, how easy is it not to come to church? Some people it's very easy. Any little thing can keep them from going to church. Uh, I feel my stomach's a little upset today, I'm not going to church. Uh, I've got a little bit of a headache, I'm not going to church. My car has four flat tires, I'm not going to church. <laughs> uh, now, that one might be a little harder to get over, but you know what? I, you might be able to walk to church if it's close, or there's probably somebody that would pick you up. I've told people, as long as they don't call me right when it's service time, I'll go pick them up. I'll bring them to church. It's not that big a deal. There's, no, there's very few excuses to, that are really legitimate excuses for not serving God. And I've told people, for me, it's pretty much I have to be in the hospital. And over the, the last 12 or 13 years we've been in Kingman, I've missed church one time, and guess where I was? I was in the emergency room. <laughs> During that, during that uh, particular event. And that includes Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And them talking even before I was a pastor. I've, been, I've had this attitude for years. My kids knew one thing. On Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, we were going to church. And they were going to church. There was no option in the matter. They were going to church as well. Because that was what we were going to do. Because God convicted me that you go to church. Forsake not the assembling of yourself, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The one thing I have noticed with people who will tell me, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and I'm going, you're absolutely right. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. However, everybody that I see that tells me they're a Christian and they don't go to church, I see them go in the wrong direction. 
I do not see them getting more and more righteous as I watch them over months and years. I see them spending more time partying, more time with the world, more time walking away from God than I see them moving toward God. Why? Because we need the body of Christ to grow. We need one another. We need one another to, to encourage us, for us to encourage others, to help us knock off all the bad sin in our life, you know, and they're kind of saying, well, gee, you know, why are you doing that? And, and they may not even be an accusi- accusative. They're just asking us, you know, why are you living that way? And it's like, oh, well, well, ouch, that hurt. You know, <laughs> you're, you're knocking off an area in my life that needs to be knocked off. But I didn't want it knocked off. And this is the problem that we have. If we abstain from being with the body, the ecclesia, the gathering together of the, of the believers with the same beliefs, then we hurt ourselves in the long run. We need each other. We cannot isolate ourselves and grow. Another example that people will use is a, on a fire. If you've ever played and taken a red hot or white hot coal out of the middle of a fire and set it off to the side, it does not take long for that coal to extinguish itself. It doesn't have the heat from the rest of the fire to stay burning. And we see that also. And that's the way it is as Christians. We need each other to serve God. We need each other to grow. I was sharing with Robert this afternoon. You know, a lot of pastors stop listening to other messages and other pastors, and they end up stagnating. They need to, we as pastors need to be taught. We need to be listening to other pastors. We need to have friendships with other pastors. We need to be able to be taught. Because we are not islands of expertise all on our own. We know, you know, we've studied, we know things, we've been studying for years, we handle God's word rightly. But if we're not spending time with others being taught ourselves, it is very easy to go astray. And we see it frequently. Somebody like uh, David Koresh, who with the Branch Davidians, his initial lessons weren't that bad when you listen to his early teachings. But he started thinking that he was the expert in everything, and before long, he was doing all kinds of weird teachings and things. And he wasn't accountable to anybody else, and he stopped listening to other people, and he went off and did crazy things. We need one another. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, yes. But if you get your hearing dull, you're not going to hear the Holy Spirit. When you're on fire, when you're with other Christians, you're going to hear the Holy Spirit. You're going to be looking for the Holy Spirit. The further you pull away from the the church, the less you're going to hear the Holy Spirit's words. Because he's not going to shout into our life. He whispers into our life. We have to be listening for him to teach. And I can tell you, oh, there's been so many times when he's just whispered quietly into into me. You know, usually it's after I've taught something and I'm driving home and he'll say, do you believe this? And I'm going, okay, God, how are you going to test me coming up? <laughs> There's a test coming up. What are you wanting me to do? Sometimes the tests are pretty simple. They're just, okay, God, I can do that. That's not a problem. We're going we're gonna to walk in that. And the real test is when you walk in that and the, the tests start coming your way. But other times it's like, oh, ouch. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to see. We need to be careful because God's going to challenge us. And I tell you this all the time. When I teach something and you say, oh, wow, yes, that's great, get ready. <laughs> get ready to be tested in that area that you've just agreed with. Be ready to be tested even if you don't agree with it. God's still going to test you when, when you're taught. Satan heard that too. Satan heard it too. He's going to say, I'm not going to let you walk in that, in that area. I'm not going to let you walk successfully in that area. And he's going to go to God just as he did with uh, Job and say, can I 
God, can I test them in this area? Can I, can I challenge them? And sometimes God's going to say no, but you know, more often than not, he's going to say yes. Go ahead and test them. Let's see if they really believe what they've been learning. Let's see if they truly believe. When you, when you start trying to learn about loving people, you're going to find all kinds of hard-to-love people coming into your life. And God's going to say, are you really ready to love? And you know, unfortunately, most of the time we go, no. <laughs> you, know, you know, not that person, God. Anybody but that person. We learn about forgiveness. And God's going to have somebody come in our life that does something that we're going to have to forgive. And it's going to be just that same thing. God, I can't forgive them. Look what they just did to me. And God's going, I'm teaching you forgiveness. You start deciding, I'm going to tithe. And immediately, what's the first thing that happens when you decide you're going to tithe? Some bill comes in that, uh, that needs that money that was all set to be tithed. And that's that moment of, God, am I going to do what I told you I'm going to do? Or do I don't believe, or do I not believe that you're going to supply all my needs? No matter what we learn about, God is going to put a test in our, in our path. Do you believe? Are you going to stand even when everything says don't? That hard-to-love person coming into your life, you know, and it's, they're just nasty, mean, obnoxious. Everything that you don't like is who they are. And God's going, I want you to love them. And everything in you says, no way, God. I can't stand anything that they do. And God's saying, I want you to love them. And you have a hard decision at that moment. Am I going to love people like God loves? Imagine if God did the same thing to us because we were his enemies before we come to him. He goes, well, no, nope, I can't love you. You're my enemy. You do everything wrong. You're a sinner. That's not the way God deals with us. And he will challenge us in the same way. And I really bring this up so often because I want people to be aware. So many times people hear something in the Gospels or in the Bible and message from the, from the pulpit and they go, yeah, God, I want to do that. And at the very first test they come across, they fall flat on their face because somehow they believe that just saying I'm going to do it makes it happen. And that is not the way the spiritual walk is. Just as when we teach a child to walk, they fall down a lot. When you first learn to play a sport, you do not get it right the first couple times unless you're some really superstar, and those are very, very rare and fall far between. You know, how many of you remember learning to play baseball and they're saying, get down on the ball, get down on the ball as the ball is rattling past you or between your legs, uh, to your side, uh, and you do this over and over and over again and you go chasing the, <laughs> chasing the ball all day long. And eventually you get to the place where if you have any knack at sports, <laughs> you finally start stopping more than you miss. And then you forget that how hard it was to learn. And this is the sad thing for us as Christians. Oftentimes we forget how hard it was to learn the lessons that God put us through. And we start looking at others going, what's wrong with you? It's not a problem for me. Well, yeah, well, I haven't had 60 years to learn this or 40 years to learn this or 30 years to learn this like you did. And this is where it's important for us to remember. Even if I don't remember it, there was a time when I did not walk in whatever I'm successfully walking in today. I did not just get up and start running spiritually in that area. And we need to be able to remember it takes time. And I've told lots of people that when I speak about things, I'm not trying to brag about it, but I've had 40 years of walking with God, and I've learned a lot of lessons in 40 years. 
And I am so thankful that God put me in a place that I learned at a very early age to follow him. It has blessed me and saved me in so many areas, and I have to be very careful that I don't try to judge people for not growing fast enough. And I'm usually pretty successful at it. When somebody says, I'm finally learning about it, I'm going, great, I'm, I'm very happy for you. you know, I'm not going to say about time, you know, because I think about how long and I've shared with people, there was a lesson it took me six years to learn. And that one sticks out in my mind because God was making sure that I knew that not every lesson is learned easily and quickly. And it took me a long time and it affected my family while I was playing with not being obedient. And in six years, I'm just a little stubborn. <laughs> Over the years, I've gotten softer. <laughs> but I used to be a very stubborn person who didn't respond well to any correction or anything because I, was, I knew how to do it. <laughs> No, it has nothing to do with the marriage. We've been married 36 years. No, it was during the it was during. It had nothing to do with marriage, though. It had nothing to do with marriage, but they, the family suffered because of me taking so long to learn. And that's the problem also for, for husbands and, and fathers. When we are disobedient, it's not just us who are going to be suffering. Our family will suffer because of our disobedience. When the government is disobedient to God's way of doing things, the nation suffers. When a pastor is disobedient to God, the church can suffer. When you're in leadership, you have a higher standard because there's others that are going to suffer because of your slow learning, which is why I'm glad God waited as long as he did to bring me into a pastor's position because he softened me and made me start listening a lot quicker to him because I didn't, would not have been a good pastor taking six years to learn something. You're learning. Huh? You're learning because you're getting better. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I will always be learning. So, But for us, it's the same thing. We're always going to be learning. God's going to be challenging us. And even when you think you're at, some, at the top of whatever it is that he's teaching, he'll give you another harder, harder lesson to learn. You know, you thought you, you thought you got away with loving that unlovable person and God will put an even more unlovable person in your path to say, do you, okay, let's take you to the next level of love. Let's take you to the next level of, of learning to forgive. And he'll go, and that's exactly it. Here we go again, God, you know, uh, all right, God. But you know, each, each additional level becomes a little easier because you have something to build on. You've seen the success. You've seen the, you've seen God be honorable and, and give you the way out and he gives you the next step and says okay are you ready for this one and that to be honest the next step is always easier even though it's also harder same thing with your if you start exercising you know those first those first months of exercising are murder and you're only using a 10 pound dumbbell you're not even you're not even putting any weight on it but it's murder you know then you start adding then you start adding the weights to it and those next weights you know, you know the difference, but they're not as bad as that very first time of starting. And it's the same way with our walk with God. The first lesson is always going to be the hardest because it's all new. Every bit of it is new. The next one, even though it's a stronger course, a stronger lesson, is not near as bad. And we think of it even in the, in the school world. And I love mathematics, so forgive me if we're using mathematics as an example. When you first in school, you learn your addition tables. If you, if, at least you used to. They're not doing that anymore. Then you'd learn your multiplication tables. Then they would teach you fractions. Each one had its little stretch, but because you had already been building on things that you knew, it was, yes, it was a stretch, but it wasn't as hard as the initial 
learning curve was. And then before long, you're doing the advanced differential calculus. Yeah. <laughs> Very few people have gone that far. <laughs> or, or number theory. But you know, each step of the way was learning just a little bit more on top of it. Same thing when you study languages. You learn the basics, and then you, you add on to it, and you add on to it, and you add on to it. And before long, you're doing very complex things with language. This is the way God works with us. Simple stuff, but those first simple things, oh, they seem so difficult, don't they? Remember back on those first lessons that you learned from God, and then he starts stretching you. But that stretching's not near as bad as the initial lessons if you don't fight it. <laughs> Many of us sit there and fight, God, I learned this lesson already. I don't want to learn it again. And the more we fight it, the harder that lesson is. We need to be able just to give it over to God. God, I surrender. I surrender. And you know, those are the hardest words for us as humans to say to God. Even to God. God, I'm going to surrender my life to you. But oh, the preciousness of it when you surrender your life to him. When you let God be your defense, which we've talked so often about in, in Psalms, let him be our defender. How many times have you tried to defend yourself against other people for God even and made a mess out of things? I'm that way. I'll, I'll admit it right off. If I try to defend myself, I'm going to make a mess out of it. Always. If I just sit back and say, God, you're my defender. I'm going to let you deal with it. It's amazing how easy life is. <laughs> it, it's always worked for me. Every once in a while, I get stupid and try to defend myself and go, why did I do that? I just made this person mad at me for no, no reason, and then usually comes the hard part. Yeah. You know, I'm really sorry that I said this to you and that to you. That really wasn't the Christian thing to do. Oh, is that the hard thing to do? Eating crow for having tried to defend yourself, for God even, when God is your defender. And I have seen God defend in so many mighty ways. When we just let God defend us, it is a very simple thing. And all through the scriptures, he says, I'm your defense. I'm your strong tower. I'm your shield. I'm your buckler. I'm, I'm, your, I'm your mighty fortress. Hide in me. Over and over and over and over again. When God goes through and repeats something that often, we better start listening. And yet, so often, we don't listen. Okay, God, I know you're my shelter and my shield and my fortress, but I'm going to run out in the middle of the battle without any armor or protection, and I'm going to fight this battle. And you come crawling back all bloodied and beat up and, and, and bruised up and going, why did I do something so stupid? I really, this was not good. And you crawl back to God and you hide in him, and he has to heal you and, and, and bandage you up, and, and, and then you suffer the consequences for having tried to do it. We need to learn God is loving and caring for us. He wants to help us. You know, sometimes we forget that. God wants to help us. He wants to defend us. We are his children. How many of us have parents, when our kids do something that they even deserve punishment, want to keep them from getting the punishment that they deserve? When they do something stupid, we try to keep the consequences from off of them. And oftentimes, we'll take the pain upon ourselves. You know, we'll pay for their mistakes. We'll do whatever we can to keep them out of trouble. When what they really need is sometimes that trouble to grow up, and yet we try to protect them. God will let us. When we wanna, if we don't want to grow up, he'll let us make the mistakes, and he'll let us suffer the consequences for those mistakes. 
Now, he would rather we didn't make those mistakes. He would rather that we didn't have to suffer the consequences. But he knows that when we make mistakes, we need to suffer the consequences. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Doesn't mean he isn't going to pick us up and, and hold us and lift us up and say, okay, have you learned your lesson? Are you going to do it right the next time? Are you going to stay hidden in me? We have this tendency to try to get out from underneath what God wants us to do. In Ephesians, we're told, put on the whole armor of God. And I keep bringing it out on this. The whole armor of God, every piece of armor is Jesus Christ. Which means, same thing we learn in here. We're to hide in Jesus. <laughs> I am to hide in him and stay hidden in him. Let him bear the, bear the attacks, bear the punishment, bear the, bear the hardships. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. We just let him deal with it. Take my burden. My burden is light. And he says, I'll carry your burden. He lets us carry his burden, which is nothing. And yet, how many times do we go, God, no, nah, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I want to carry the 5,000 pounds of weight on my back. Well, and even though you're there and able to carry it, I'll go ahead and carry it. And then we lose the joy of our salvation and the... Uh, and, we, and everything goes wrong, and people are going, wow, what are you so down for? Well, you know, I've got this great big weight on my back that I just won't give over to God. There's a skit that goes on in churches a lot where, they will, where a guy will come down an aisle carrying bags and, and dragging, dragging all this uh, briefcases and everything, and they come down, and they just can't handle everything they've got. They come to the cross, and depending on what lesson they're trying to teach you, everything comes off at the cross, and if they're trying to teach you that the, what you're supposed to do is walk away, then the guy walks away leaving everything there. But the usual lesson you see from that is the person starts to walk away, go, well, no, I can handle this, I can handle this, I can handle this. And before you know them, they're walking back down the aisle and they left one bag at the cross. But, you know, isn't that what we do with God so often? Here, God, take all my problems. I want to give them to you. Oh, God, I need this one. I need this one. Uh, no, I, don't, I think I can handle this one. And we walk away with as much, sometimes maybe even more, than we were going to give him in the first place. And he's, I could picture him at the cross saying, didn't you learn anything? You're supposed to have left it here. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a very beautiful story when Christian climbs up the hill and stands before the cross. His burden falls off of his back, and he could not get his burden off his back, which led him to it. It rolls down the hill, and into the, into the grave, which is the way it's supposed to be for us Christians. When God lifts our burden from us, it's supposed to roll away into the cross where it's been paid for, uh, into the grave where it's been paid for. And it's a very beautiful picture. I don't know if, you've ever, if anybody's here read Pilgrim's Progress, but it's a wonderful book, uh, especially if you get it in an English, modern English version and not in the original, uh, older than Bible, <laughs> King James Bible uh, version. Uh, but it's a wonderful story of God's deliverance and how hard it was even to get to that point and then beyond that point. It's too many Christians, especially here in America, think that becoming a Christian is the answer to all your problems. And once you become a Christian, everything is going to be perfect. And you know, the really sad thing is, I have heard people make it sound like that's exactly what's going to happen. Turn to God. He will give you everything that you need and, never, and he will make all your problems go away. That is the American gospel that you'll hear in a lot of churches. Either that bluntly or veiled, but that is what they're saying in many cases. 
Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. You switch armies in the middle of a battle and the, the, your, the army you left is not going to be happy. Satan is not happy when somebody turns to Christ and changes armies in the middle of the battle. Now he's limited on what he can do to what God will, will allow him to do, but he is not happy and you become a target. And we need to be aware of that. Becoming a Christian means that we are a target. Especially if you're going to do anything for God. If all you want to do is become a Christian and sit in a pew, never read your Bible, never tell anybody about Jesus, Satan doesn't care about you at all. You're not a threat to his kingdom. How about those who go out and share Christ with people? That witness, that read their Bible, have their life changed. I told the kids this morning in the Sunday school class about my conversion. I got saved when I was 10 years old. I'd been going to different churches all the time before that, but I got saved when I was 10 years old. That week, I went out and I told all my friends they needed to know Jesus. The only problem was I was only 10 years old. I really didn't know much more than I said a prayer when I was in that church, and I know that God is in my heart. I think, well, how do you do I, I don't know, but come, on, come with me to church that next week, and we'll get on the bus, and they'll tell you how to, the, the church will tell you how to do it. That poor bus driver had about 20, kid, 20 or 30 kids standing at the bus stop waiting to get on the bus that morning, that Sunday morning. He's looking at, what's going on? And go, they all want to hear about Jesus. <laughs> and we filled the bus. You know, we filled a big portion of the bus. The sad thing is for us, how many of us, when we first got saved, told lots of people about Jesus when we knew nothing about him? And now that we've been walking with him for many years, there are many Christians who could count the number of people they've told about Jesus on, their, on one hand tied behind, and the other one with most of it tied behind their back. And that's sad. When you have the answers, you don't share. When you don't have the answers, you used to share. We need to share. We are told, go ye into all the world, teaching and baptizing and making disciples. That's our job. And as I've shared with people, most people have one big concern in their mind when, when it comes to witnessing. What if, I, what if they ask me a question I don't know? And I've done enough evangelism classes, I've heard that question come out of many, many people's mouths. And you know, I've shared it with you, the answer is very simple. Your greatest fear, what will happen if they ask me a question that I don't know, is your greatest blessing. Because your answer back to them is, that is a very good question, I don't know the answer, I will go find out the answer, can we meet again next week, tomorrow, two days, whatever is good for your time frame. But I'm going to go find out that answer for you, and I'd love to share, you, share that answer with you. Now you get to witness to them twice. And you know what? Maybe they'll ask you another question you don't know, and you can get a third time telling them the gospel. So the very thing that we worry about the most, if we have the right attitude, is the greatest blessing that we can have. Because I'm going to go find out your answers. Then you go to the Bible study yourself. You go to a, a teacher that you know and ask. You go to your pastor and say, hey, this was asked to me. How do I... How do I answer that? You get an answer, you go back and see them. Or you go do your own research if you've been around long enough and know where to, where to research. But the thing that people fear the most should be the greatest blessing that can happen to them because they get to share the gospel multiple times with this person. And if that happens, I'll pray that they ask me a question I don't know the answer to all year long so eventually they'll hear the gospel and actually hear it in their, and, and respond because it gives you that opportunity. They're thinking about it. Many people get saved that night after they've heard the gospel message. 
This afternoon at the memorial, we gave a very straightforward, hard-hitting gospel message. There are people in that room that needed to hear that message. They may be out tonight getting ready for bed, and they're gonna, they'll be thinking, man, that crazy pastor, you know, he talked about this crazy stuff, and then something in the back of their mind will go, what if he's right? And the Holy Spirit will start moving. I don't, can't tell you over the last 40 years how many times I've heard that testimony. I got saved that night after having heard somebody give, some crazy nut giving me this gospel, and all of a sudden this Holy Spirit started working on my mind and saying, what if they're right? We are not accountable for what we say in, to anybody. We're only accountable for saying it. God is the one who's going to bring the increase. And this is what's important. He brings the increase. And I've said this over and over. My job is not to build Chloride Baptist Church. My job is to build the kingdom of God. God's job is to build our church. And he's done a mighty job building our church over these years in many ways. Not so much numerical as I'd love to see myself, but he has done great blessings in, this, in our church. And we just need to be aware of what is a blessing from God's point of view? Much different than what we think of, just we talked about this morning. A blessing from God is one that is spiritually oriented, not physically oriented. People ask me, well, how's your church doing? I go, the people are growing fantastically spiritually. They go, well, how about your numbers? I go, well, that's what they are. You know, I'm not worried. And I've told people, I would rather have the 20, 24 people we have that are growing spiritually then have 5,000 people out there who aren't growing. And coming once a year, coming a year or coming twice a, twice a month or whatever it might be. To have people who are dependable, that come and are growing. I have taken such great pleasure in watching the growth in the people in this church. Many people who said, you know, I've walked many years and this is the first time I've really gotten in, in love with God's word or with this story or understood these things. And it's great. And thank you, God. You know, he's using me to minister to people. And it could be anybody doing this. And I know that. So that's what even makes it even more wonderful. When I hear these numbers of how many people are listening online, it just amazes me sometimes when I look at those and going, okay, God. <laughs> You know, it's humbling that the people are out there listening. It really is. I know, I know I'm a decent teacher, but, you know, it's just amazing that people listen that many. Because I, I've got people I listen to that I think, you, could, you guys probably should be listening to these other guys. These guys, are, these guys are better than me. But God has a place for each one of us. God has people that you are the only one that probably can truly reach with your personality, your way of talking, your way of reaching out to them. Because like what you said, you're planting seeds. Planting seeds. Mm -hmm. And we planted lots of seeds today. And some of you may be the ones that actually get to harvest those when people come and talk to you and go, well, you know, this is what he said. Is this what he meant? You know, how do I deal with that? And you may be the one plant, watering those seeds because you live in the town where I don't. They'll have to come to the church to talk to me. They'll see you at the post office. They'll see you out by the library. They'll see you working in your yards. They will see you, and you may be the ones that get to water. You may even be the one that gets to, to pluck the fruit from the seed that's been planted. And then you get to be the one that helps disciple them at that point. 
and or encourage them to come to church, encourage them to get into the Bible, encourage them to grow. We don't know what it is that God's got in place. But I know that there are people that I would never be able to reach. I have a college education. I work well with those who are college educated and be able to discuss the, the fine points of against evolution for creationism. There are people that have no problem, don't even want to hear about that. <laughs> they want to know how do you get victory over your drinking and your drugs. I can tell them how to do it, but they're probably not going to listen to me. I've never been there. Even though I have the answers, because God's word is where the answer is, and it's amazing that when I listen to the people who have been there, done that, helping them, they say the same thing that I would have said. <laughs> but people listen to them because they've been there. There's people that I will never be able to reach, and I accept that. There are people that I can reach and other people in this room would never be able to talk to. They would just be blown out of the water because of the questions that they were asking that I have no problem with. We all are uniquely gifted to talk to unique individuals out there. One of the reasons there's so many different churches is because every pastor has a unique set of gifts that reaches out to a unique set of Christians that need to hear a unique set of truth. Even though it's the same truth, but the way they present it resonates with the people they're talking to. And this is true, and I've been there. I've had people say, this is a really great pastor, and I've listened to him, and I'm going, yeah, he's okay, he's, he's biblical. But I wouldn't want to sit under him, just because of whatever. Not that he's teaching wrong or bad or anything, it's just not a pastor that I resonate with. And God says, okay, so we're going to give you your people, the ones who you can reach and talk to. And... This is something, there's, there's a lot of people out there that say, well, there should only be one church. Well, theoretically, if we were all walking in Christ the way we were supposed to, yes, there probably should just be one church. But it's not going to happen with human, humans involved. We're all sinners. We all have things that we like or don't like. And we need to be able to say, all right, that pastor reaches that group with the way he does it. That pastor reaches this group the way he does it. Uh, this pastor reaches his group with the way he does it. They're teaching, as long as they're teaching the gospel, I don't care how they do it. You, know, you got this, ch this uh, church over here, when you go to church, it's a rock and roll, you know, loud light show service that's drawing the right group. As long as they preach the gospel behind that, that song and, and dance, then fine, be my guest. It's not my church. You got these ones that swear that you only can do hymns. If you're not doing hymns, you're not, you're not worshiping God right. Fine, not my flavor of flavor it, but if that's what it takes and you've got a pastor that wants to do that, be my guest and, and worship that way. But don't judge the other group just because they're not your cup of tea. Now, if I'm looking at a pastor who's teaching false doctrine, I'm going to say, no, don't go there because this teacher doesn't teach the Bible. But as long as they're teaching the gospel of Christ, that's their business. Do they do everything the way I would do it? No, and it's not my job to judge that pastor for, for the way he walks. Just as it's not their job to come in and judge me for anything that I do. Because we stand or fall before God. And we need to be very understanding. God is the one that provides. He's the one that brings us all these things. He's the one that teaches us to go forward. He's the one that lifts people up and sets people down. If they're really going off the wrong direction, God will deal with them. And it's not our job to judge individuals. Now, if somebody's doing obviously sinful things, then we can say, hey, you know, that's sinful. Even that is not my job to judge them. It's just to say, 
you're not following God's, God's word. You're sleeping with every woman in your church, Pastor. You're, you're violating God's word. Okay? And there are pastors that have done that. They get exposed eventually. And, but it's not our job to go judge them. It's like, <laughs> Pastor, you're, you're living dangerously. Matter of fact, if there's any individual in your church doing that, they're living dangerously. We need to be careful. We need to be able to say, this is sin. Not in a judgmental way, but it is sin, and they've got to deal with it before God. When people come to this church, and I've said this over and over, I want anybody, everybody to come to this church so they can hear the gospel. I don't care what their sin, sin is doing. I know one thing for you. Eventually, if they want to live in that sin and not repent, they're going to leave. Because I'm not going to back off. I'm not going to judge them because of their sin, but I am going to call their sin a sin. And that's going to bother people eventually. They're either going to get correct or they're going to leave. And that's all I can do. I want everybody here, but I'm not going to back off and say, well, you know, to get the drunks here, we're just not going to call dr you know, uh, drunks, uh, drunkenness a sin. No, we're going to say drunkenness is a sin. We're going to say that adultery is a sin. We're going to say that fornication is a sin. We're going to say that adult, uh, homosexuality is a sin. We're going to say that lying is a sin. No matter what the world wants to say about things, no matter what the world's going to say, and, you know, well, you're, you're being very, very judgmental. No, we're just calling it what it is. I want them in our church. Our churches need to have sinners in them because that's who we're preaching to. Ultimately, our job, though, and my job is more important. I am to teach believers to go out and share their faith with the world and draw those people in so that they can be taught to go back out and, sit and, and, and work on the world. Our job as a church is not to get people saved in the church. Now, when, like the memorial, when I have a lot of people that I don't know where, their spiritual gifts, where they are spiritually, I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to preach it hard. But it, most times my job is just to teach the people in our church to grow in Christ so they can go out and share. And I will take every advantage in here. My, my oldest son has listened to many of my messages, and he called me up and says, you always preach the gospel. And I go, well, yeah, I've got to put the gospel in every, every message. And almost every time I speak has the gospel in it. Is it really hardcore gospel message? Not usually. Because usually I'm talking to a whole bunch of people that know Christ. But I'm assuming that everybody knows Christ, so I will still give the gospel. And maybe it'll resonate. We're also preaching to who knows how many people around the world on the internet that may or may not know God. They may need to hear the gospel message. We preach the gospel. We teach the gospel. We share the gospel with our friends and neighbors. And my question always is, do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? <laughs> now, in my family, they know, in my household, they know we are because if you know Samuel, Samuel used to walk up and down the neighborhood talking to everybody about Jesus. Okay, he, we, know, we know every Christian on our block who has it, who's lived there any length of time. And they all know that we're a Christian as well because of how he, how he talked about it. Uh, and now he's in Havasu, doing the same thing in Havasu, talking to everybody about Jesus. My son, my youngest son. But he, he is a prayer warrior. He loves God with all of his heart. Uh, he was here two weeks ago, yeah. He loves God, and he is not shy about talking about God. And he is very outgoing. 
but I've also done the same thing over the years. My neighbors know that we are a Christian because we talk to them. We invite them to church. We invite them to, to find out where they're at with God. We need to do that. We need to be sharing God with the people we come across. I shared with people, how many times do we gripe and complain because we're in the slowest line at the checkout, checkout counter? Uh, and I've told you if, if you, if you see me standing in a, in a line, even if it looks like the shortest one, do not get in that line. Because it will be the longest line no matter what. Something will go wrong ahead of me to slow that line down. But do we spend our time griping and complaining about how slow the line is, or do we maybe share the gospel with the people around us? An opportunity to share. It doesn't have to be even anything really hard. It goes, you know, well, isn't it great that we can meet, learn patience from God by being in this line that's going so slow? And that might open a door. How long is it to take to give the gospel? If you take an evangelism class, one of the first things they try to do is tell you to get your testimony down to 60 seconds long. You know, when I was... And I've been able to do that. When I was 10 years old, I went to church and I got saved. I heard the gospel. Even though I'd been seeking God for so many years, I heard the gospel and I responded. Didn't take even 60 seconds to give that message. Then you can give the gospel. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you call upon the name of the Lord of, of God, you shall be saved. Doesn't, in two minutes, you can give them your testimony and the gospel. What stops us? What stops us from giving the gospel? Because we somehow don't think it's that simple. Fear of persecution, fear of somebody getting mad at us, fear of somebody saying something nasty to us, fear that they might ask something we don't know the answer to. The gospel is so simple, any child can know it. And yet, it is so complicated that you can study it for the rest of your life and never know everything there is to know about salvation. And I've shared with people, there's a set of uh, uh, commentaries for pastors, and I think it was 35 volumes on salvation. Everything you ever didn't want to know about salvation or were afraid to ask <laughs> is in this volume. We did the class for 51 weeks, the 51 things that happened to you at the moment of salvation. Do you realize how many things happen to you as soon as you get saved? If you've been in the church long enough, you, you, you know these things. We become adopted. We become his children. We become a new, new creation. We are you know, all these different things that we have. But there's a, so many things that happen to us the moment we are saved, when we think about it. And how little do we really think about the importance of salvation. If we've been saved for years, we should start to really start understanding salvation is a powerful event in our life. So much happened and we need to be able to recognize that it happened because we are a new creation. Do you realize how important that one statement is? I got saved, my flesh was crucified, and he made me a new, brand new, never-before-seen creation called his child. He adopted us into the royal family. He gives us the power to live a perfect life, even though we don't live in that power. 
He has made us perfect. He, we have the righteousness of Christ. When we stand before God, he looks at us and says, this is my perfect child, because he sees Jesus Christ. When we stand before him at our death, he looks and says, oh, per perfection. Enter into the kingdom. All these things, and we buy the lies of Satan. Satan comes to our door. You know, you're just a worthless, worthless, terrible person. You don't deserve anything. Satan is speaking facts. Because we are worthless, terrible people. And we know it. But when he does that to us, we go, you know what, Satan, you're absolutely right. But I'm going to give you a little bit of truth. <laughs> I'm a blood-bought child of God, and I am perfect in the righteousness of Christ, and you can't stop me. Start, start living in the truth. Start living in the truth. Not the facts that he throws in our face. Because if we looked at the facts, we are worthless, but it is under the blood. It is no longer the truth. It may be a fact, but it is, no tr it is not the truth. It has been buried. It is gone. We are new. We need to live in that power of the newness of that change. When Satan comes and lies to us with a bunch of facts, we're going, get out of here, you're a liar. Get out of here. I am a blood-bought child of, of God, and I am seen by God as perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect, but you know what? God sees us as perfect. How does he see us as perfect? Because he sees us as what we will be, not as what we are. He knows the beginning from the end. When he looks at us, he says, I know what you're going to be. I know your glorified body. And he sees us after the glorified body. He doesn't see us after what we are now. It's an amazing thing. We, have, we struggle with this because we live in time. We live in time, so we have a problem with this. But God says, I know what you're going to be. And I'm going to see you the way you're going to be. And who's going to make us that? He makes us that. So he sees us as he knows he's going to make us as perfect beings. And he treats us that way. And we come before him and he sees us, oh, here's my perfect child coming into my presence. You know, this is my perfect good child. Yes, we've been really bad for the last week, but he says, here's my perfect child coming into my presence. <laughs> but he has his glasses. He's got his glasses from, from eternity future. God sees things as they will be, not as they are. And we need to keep that in mind. No, he doesn't need glasses. But he sees things as they will be, always. Because as far as he's concerned, everything's done. We've got to understand, God being outside of time is not seeing us even at this point. And I've shared with this before. When we talk about God's omnipresence, it is not just that he is everywhere, okay, which is what was taught in, He's everywhere and every time at the same time. And we've talked about this. He's with Adam and Eve right now. He's with Jesus at the cross right now. He's with us here right now. He's in the millennial kingdom right now. That's sort of like the God, the Father, and the Son knows. Yeah, it's very much like the Trinity. But it's just like we look down on a picture and we see all of the picture we see all of a timeline. 
Well, God sees it all, but he is actually in all of it at the same time because of his greatness. God sees things as they will be when he creates the new heaven and the new earth and has just the saints in that place and the world has been judged and, 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 and those who've rejected him are in hell. He already is there. He already knows exactly what happens. He already knows the decisions people are going to make. He knows what's happening and he sees us as we will be. And that is where, why he can treat us the way he does. Because he already knows where we're going to be successful. He already knows where we're going to fall. Because he sees us as perfect anyway. The power of that truth. And I've said this over and over again. No matter how big you think God is, you're too small. No matter how omnipresent you think God is, you're too small. No matter how all-powerful you think he is, you're too small. Multiply it by a gigaplex number, and you're still too small. No matter what we think about God, our thoughts about him are too small. And I can tell you, I have grown so much. My God, the God that I believe in today is so much bigger than he was 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, even 5 years ago. He gets bigger everything he shows me about him. And even as big as I see God, I don't see him big enough. He is so much bigger than anything we can comprehend because he is infinite. And we have a finite brain and no matter how big we try to stretch our finite brain into infinity, we're not thinking big enough. God is always going to be bigger than we are. And when we get our glorified bodies, and we have learned a lot of things that from him at that time, and we spend eternity learning, God will still be bigger than we're going to be. Because if, if, if we ever got as big as God, we would be God, and we will never be God. He will always be bigger than anything that we are, think, and can com comprehend. He will always be God. He will always be bigger than anything that we think. And I think when we get our glorified bodies, God is going to grow greatly in our minds, and he will still be too small in the way we think. Even when we're seeing him, we will not, he will be too small in the way we see him because he is infinite, and we will, we will not become infinite. We are not becoming gods when we get to heaven. We are still his creation. We're his children. We'll have great blessings. We will have great knowledge. But we will never become God. We'll become the bride. We will become his children. We'll become as close as we can be to it. But we will not become God. And just for good measure, we also don't become angels. We will never become angels. We will rule over angels. I heard a few people today talking about... Uh, Vicky being around, watching over them. Well, I'm sorry. She's in heaven. She's not watching over them. The angel's job is to come and watch over us. When you get to heaven, you're not going to think about this world. I'm sorry. You're not going to think about this world. You're going to be thinking about the beautiful Savior gazing into those eyes that died for you and just taking in all of heaven, meeting those that have gone on before us and saying, listening to whatever it is that they've learned over the time that they've been there. But, and then God will say, hey, by the way, you know, your son's coming up today. Go, go greet him at the gate. You know, they, need to, they need to know that you're still, still here. Oh, no, do I really have to do that? I have to leave your presence to go, go to the gate? Have faith. Have faith. <laughs> but all of this comes down to God is 
great. And he is good. And he is always good. And he is always going to be great and he's always going to be bigger than we are. And I don't know how I got onto this from where I was at, but this is where we're going to stop. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and you care for us. We thank you that you are great, that you do love us. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this that doesn't know you, we ask that you just convict them of their sin and draw them to you, that they will get saved and that they will grow in you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.